truly is amazing what the martyrs through the years in the history of Christianity have been willing to sacrifice and to give to follow Jesus. We keep following the record. <clears throat> Polycarp was a, an early Christian. He was a bishop in Smyrna. He was threatened that he would be burned at the stake if he did not recant his faith. He would not recant, but he said these words. The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little while. <clears throat> you do not know the fire of coming judgment, but why did you delay? <clears throat> Come and do what you will. I have what courage. And then we see it happen through the centuries. 1555, there's these two men in Great Britain who are standing up for Jesus and the church wants to have them killed because of their faith in the gospel. Their name are Hugh Lattimore and Nicholas Riddle. And they are also going to be burned at the stake and they are tied together and the fire begins. And one of them looks at the other and says, Be of comfort, Master Riddle, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Amazing. A man in India years ago was threatened to be skinned and burned because of his faith in Jesus. And as they begin to take his flesh off of his body, he said, I thank God for this. Tear off my garment, for I shall put on Christ's garment of righteousness. Amazing. But we come to today's headline in Mark chapter 14, and we must say, Jesus... Scared to death. Jesus faces death and he's afraid. And I ask you today, did these martyrs handle death better than Jesus? Did they have more courage than Jesus? Did they have more faith because we come to this twisted olive grove at the base of the Mount of Olives? And we come to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It must have been loaned to Jesus by a rich friend who had a garden outside of town. It's Passover week. It's teeming with people. And Jesus knows what's about to happen. And he's got to get away. And he goes to this dark place. He's been there many times before to pray. And he comes to this place. And he wants the company of God. And he wants the company of his best friends. But look at high fields. Look at verse 33. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The word there for deeply distressed, it's the word we get in the Bible for astonished. He's looking death straight in the eye and he is Distressed, he's astonished. Jesus, who has always been unflappable, seems to be stopped in his track. And the word here for troubled literally means he is overcome with horror. Look at the next verse, if you don't believe what I'm saying. Verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. 
But one translation says, I am so crushed with grief. I'm crushed with grief to the point of death. The message says, I feel like dying. I mean, Jesus is going to fall on his face. I mean, we're going to keep looking at the scene. I think what we see here is the last temptation of Jesus. Listen, what has been the temptation to Jesus all through his life? Satan has tried to stop Jesus going to the cross his whole life. When we went to the wilderness, he tries to get Jesus to take another path. When Peter says you're not going to die, he tries to get Jesus to not go to the cross. And here in what I would call the final temptation of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Satan has come again one more time to whisper, you don't have to die on a cross. Watch what happens. Look at verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, I don't know if you've seen this picture, but in my grandmother's house above the piano, there was this beautiful picture. It's one of the few things I've saved from my grandmother. It, it's, a, it's a picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got long, beautiful, flowing brown hair and a beautiful robe on. And his hands are together praying. He's up against a, a rock and the moonlight is just uh, enlightening him. And it's a beautiful picture of serenity and peace. And, and let me tell you, I, I love that picture because it meant so much to my grandmother. But it's not a true picture. That's not what we see. Jesus is flat on the face Pounding the dirt, begging God for another way. I'll keep reading. Abba Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, interesting, he calls him Simon at this point. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Keep reading the story. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. Guys, over and over, he said, Lord, take this cup away from me. Let there be another way. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. One translation says they were sleepy because of sorrow. One of the gospels says that. You ever been depressed? You know what depressed people want to do? They want to sleep. The disciples have faced this week that Jesus is not who they had hoped he'd be. The conqueror of the Romans. They understand what's going on. I think they are deeply in sorrow themselves. And the best way to escape it is just to go to sleep. And yet they don't stay up for Jesus. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now here's the the question that, that hangs in the air. Why is Jesus so afraid? I mean, you've heard this morning illustration after illustration of, of, of Christian people and martyrs who face death without flinching. And yet Jesus is scared. He's full of horror. What is it? Why does he feel this way? Is he weaker than those people? Now, let me say this. I don't think it's because of the nails. 
I remember a few decades ago when a man named Dr. C. Truman Davis wrote a paper called The Medical Report of the Crucifixion that went into great detail of all the anguish of crucifixion and, and how someone died, and it really shook me up. But I don't think that's what shook Jesus up. What is it? Why is he so shook up at this point? Here's the answer. You've got to get this answer. This is the whole point of today's message. He is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He is so shook up and afraid because Jesus is about to do something that no other martyr ever did. He is about to drink the full cup of God's wrath. When Jesus asked the Father to take away the cup, that's an Old Testament illusion to the cup of God's wrath. And what does that represent? It represents all the wrath and anger of God that has existed from the beginning of time. It's God's anger and wrath about sin and selfishness and abuse and hurt and pain. And is piled up to this moment from both ends of history, it's about to be poured into a cup for Jesus to drink to the bottom of the dregs. The Bible talks about this. Ezekiel chapter 32. You will drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah 51 says, the cup made you stagger. And it did. It's that awful. And understand it. Jesus has existed as God from the beginning for all of eternity. He's been there from the beginning of time. He knows every sinful act. He knows a righteous and holy God's response to it. He knows the anger. He's been a part of it. He knows the wrath of God. And he knows how awful this cup is going to be. He said, buddy, oh, I don't like this right now. I do not like you talking about a wrathful God. I, I, I prefer a loving God. But don't, don't give me, I mean, I'm a little uncomfortable. In our modern sensibilities, man, we don't want to touch a God of wrath. But, but listen closely to me. You cannot have a loving God if you don't also have an angry God. Loving people get angry, not in spite of their love, but because of their love. Do you get that? If you love someone and you see them abused, the most loving thing you could do is get angry. If you can see someone you care about abused and mistreated and not get mad about it, then I would say you might not love them. You see, if we want a loving God, we've got to also be okay with a wrathful God because it's his love that feeds his wrath. Oh, yes, it is his justice that God has a great sense of right and wrong. And for every evil deed done, there must be some kind of punishment. But it's not just his justice. It's also his love that says, it just makes me so mad when I see people do this to other people. When I see the sin and the selfishness, it fills me with wrath. Would you really want a God that had no wrath? Would you really want a God who could see people slaughtered in the crusades in his name and not be mad about it? 
Would you really want a God who wasn't upset about six million Jews being killed in the Holocaust? Would you really want a God who's not ticked off today about the slaughter of thousands of people in Syria? Would you really want a God who could be okay with the children being abused, even some of you in your past, and God being neutral about it? I don't want that kind of God. And my friends, that's what Jesus is facing. He's got to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus doesn't have less courage or less faith than anybody we've talked about today. He's got more than anybody in the history of the world. We know that. But in this point, he faced something no one has ever faced and will ever face. And that is why he staggered at the cup of God's wrath. You ever had to drink something terrible? Jesus got to drink something awful. You ever been through something awful? I think about some of our people right now that are going through chemo. I think about what happened with um, Jordan Norrington, and thank goodness she's getting better. I think about what's going on right now with our brother Shane Prater. I mean, he's going to Houston basically to take upon himself chemo that is the goal is to bring you to the point of death and then save you. That's what they're doing. They're trying to destroy everything in their body so it can't come back. And, and you know, can you imagine taking that and taking it and taking it and feeling bad for two years straight or with Jordan for years and years? I can't imagine. But can you imagine if you're Jesus and you're not just taking it for one person, you're taking it for everybody that has ever lived. You're trying to destroy the sin that's found in all of us. And it's not just a dose big enough for you or big enough for me. It's a dose for big enough for all the billions of people who have ever lived on this globe. It's incredible. One preacher described it like this. Jesus is a person at the bottom a hundred yards from a dam. And he's looking up at this dam. And the dam is a thousand miles high and a thousand miles wide. And behind the dam is all of the wrath of God stored up from all of time. And in a moment, Jesus knows the dam is about to break and he will be swallowed up in the wrath and ugliness of every sin that has ever happened on the face of the earth. That's why it staggers. He is, faced, he is facing what no one else has ever faced. And yes, he flinches. But in the midst of this, he teaches us a lot, doesn't he? He teaches us how to handle suffering. I mean, how do you handle suffering? Let me give you three ideas about how you can avoid suffering in life. Now, there are times you need to run away from abusive relationships and things. No question about that. But for many of us, we don't ever want to suffer. And so every time things get tough at a job, in a relationship, in a church, or you name it, we run. 
And we leave behind us a trail of broken friendships and broken marriages because we run every time it gets tough. You can avoid it. On the other hand, you can come to a point where you just simply um, suppress it. You can avoid it. You can suppress it. That's what Stoics do. The idea behind Stoicism is you don't want to feel emotion. And so cut off all emotions in your life. That's why Socrates, the Stoic, when he dies, he doesn't give two flips whether he lives or dies because he's worked so hard at cutting off all emotions. But the bad thing is if you cut off the bad emotions, you also cut off the good emotions. And that's what a Stoic does. So you've got some choices. You can just avoid it. You can run from it. You can just suppress it and act like you really don't suffer in your life. Or you can do what Jesus did. You can work your way to a point of trust in God. That's what Jesus does. He prays his way to a point where he's able, he wrestles with God to the point where he's able to say, you know what, Lord, I want the cup to go. I mean, how in the world could I be excited to stand beneath this flood and let it deluge me? No, I want it to go, but I want you more than that. And I want the world to be saved more than I want me to be spared this awful, horrendous spiritual death. And so Jesus is able to trust I mean, look at the, the book of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on this earth, here's the point. He offered up cr- prayers and petitions. He's not calm, guys. There's fervent prayers and tears to the one who could save him from death. Then he was heard because of his reverent submission. And then it says, son though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Oh, Jesus is perfect. But in this moment, he is learning to obey even when he's suffering. And how does he do it? He decides to trust God. What does he trust God on? He trusts God that he'll resurrect from the dead. He believes he will come out on the other end of suffering and death victorious. And guys, listen to me. When you have to deal with suffering in your life, and I have to deal with suffering in our life, that is the same way that we can come out on the other end. We wrestle with God to the point that we trust Him, and we understand no matter how bad it gets, we're coming out on the other end in resurrection. So let me give you some practical points here as we start to close. When you're scared to death, what do you do? I mean, some of you today come to this assembly, and none of us are facing what Jesus faced, but thank God we have this example. What do you do when you're scared to death? What do you do when life brings a disease into your life or a brokenness into your life or a hurt in your life that you don't think you can get over? What do you do? Let me give you some points in this story. Number one, you watch and pray. That's why the disciples failed, guys. They didn't watch and pray. That's why they flee. They don't have the power of God because they've not asked for it. They slept when they should have been praying. Number two, remember that Jesus understands and he cares. This is the most important point when you face awful times in your life. He understands. Luke 53 verse 3 says he will be a man of sorrows. You depressed today? You sad? You struggling to want to live? We just saw a scene where Jesus felt all those things. And he bored a hundred thousand times more than you. And he understands. And so when you go to God to say, I'm hurting, I'm struggling, Lord. I'd rather life be over than keep living it. He doesn't shake his head and go, you know, that's just crazy you could feel that way. 
Jesus felt that way. And the Bible says because of that, he can come to our aid. He cares. You know what I love about this story? Even in the middle of Jesus' excruciating moments here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he still cares about these disciples. They're sleeping on him, but he goes back and he goes back and he goes back trying to teach them in the middle of the worst thing in his life. He's trying to teach them. He knows they're about to run and he still wants, he still cares about them. Hebrews 2 says it this way, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. I think that's what we're seeing. He's tempted. He's suffering. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He can come to your rescue. The closest you may ever feel to Jesus when you're going through the worst things in your life. And then number three, in the times when you're scared to death, trust God enough to surrender. I think the most powerful prayer in all the Bible is that one line, Father, not my will. Daddy, Abba, that's what he says. Daddy, not my will, but your will be done. Most powerful word in my spiritual life, I don't know if this says something good or bad, but which helped me more than any other word is the word surrender. You just come to those points in life where you got to say, God, I can't figure it out. I don't like it. I don't understand it. I can't, I don't feel like I can make it through this. I don't, but, but here's what I'm going to choose to do because I know who you are. I know how much you care. I am going to surrender to your will, not my will, but your will be done. And then that gives you the, the courage, number four, to face your fears. You face them. You don't try to avoid them. You don't try to suppress them. Some of us just try to run every time things get difficult. Some of us try to act like things are right and it explodes. When when you've got God and you can pray that prayer, not my will, but your will be done, you can face your fears. That's why Jesus, at the end of that prayer, remember what he said to those disciples? Let us rise up and let us go. My betrayer is here. Now, if you read that out of context, here's what I would think. When Jesus says, guys, let's get up and let's go. My betrayer's coming here. I think he's going out the back door. I think he's saying, let's run, guys. Let's get out of this garden before, before Judas can get here. No, 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 no. When Jesus says, rise, let us go, he's saying, we're going out and I'm going to be the greeter at the door. I mean, listen, guys, after this time with Jesus, this is why many people call this the last temptation of Jesus. Jesus never flinches again. He never staggers another moment. In fact, I want to read to you a compilation of all of the Gospels and what happens in this next scene. Because you couldn't ride over to Books a Million after church today and get something more fascinating, more dramatic, more intriguing than what's about to happen. So I'm reading all the Gospels put together for one story of what happens when Jesus walks away from this place of prayer and he faces his fears. Listen. And immediately while he was still speaking, behold, a great multitude with swords and clubs came. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus. For Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. He knew Gethsemane's where he went. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, the detachment of troops is at least 600 troops. When you add in the Roman troops and the temple guard, you probably have a thousand people with their lanterns coming up this hill to arrest Jesus. And officers from the chief priests, the scribes and Pharisees and elders of the people, they came there with lanterns, torches and weapons. 
See, here's guys what they're trying to do. Here's what Judas has allowed them to do. They don't want this thing to be too public, and so they're going to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night, try him in the middle of the night, and get him to the cross as quick as possible. Now, his betrayer had given them a signal. They want to make sure they get the right man. Whomever, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Guys, and the word here for kiss is the word for an affectionate kiss. There were different words you could use. This is an affectionate kiss. It's where we get the English idea of the kiss of death. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come, Judas? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward to them. Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. In the Aramaic, those three words are one word. It's me. Oh. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Jesus is so powerful just at his words. It appears a thousand soldiers play ring around the posies. <laughs> and ashes, ashes, they all fall down. Jesus steps out, man. They don't, they don't, they, they don't get this. And they go, where is it? It's me. Take me. And they're like, whoa. And they fall down. I don't know if it was supernatural or just from shock, but they all fall down. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let those go their way that they may, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I've lost none. Then they came and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. When those around him saw what was going, what was happening, they said to him, Lord, shall, shall we strike with the sword? Then impetuous Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. And Peter's pretty good with the sword, isn't he? Absolutely not. He misses the throat and he gets the ear. Come at a cool scene. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched Malchus's ear and he healed him. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword, put your sword in the sheath for all those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think I cannot now pray to my father and he'd provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? What's he saying? Peter, I don't need your sword. I'm in control here. I've chosen to take this path. I'm at peace with it now. I could call 12,000 legions. You know how many angels that is? 72,000 angels. You know what an angel can do? In one night, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. And Jesus has got 72,000. He's not scared. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders who'd come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching the temple. You did not try to seize me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled 
Now here's a weird little part we find in Mark. Now a certain young man followed, having a linen cloth thrown around him, around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of them, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. What a weird little deal there. A lot of scholars think that is Mark being Alfred Hitchcock. Remember all the old Alfred Hitchcock movies where he put himself in the movie? A lot of people think this is the young adolescent kid, Mark, who puts himself at the scene. He had heard what was going on. He tried to watch. And when everything went crazy, he ran like everybody else. Wow, what a scene. What a savior. And here's what I want you to remember as we close this lesson. Courage is obeying even when you're scared to death. And sometimes we think the person who's bold and courageous is the person who's never scared. My friends, more times than not, courage is doing the right thing even when you're quaking in your boots. It's, it's saying, God, I don't want to drink this cup. But I want what you want. And God, I'm facing it. Because we see this every Sunday. People that are scared to death. I get to hear about it all the time. People that are afraid. And yet they do bold things for God. It's the young man that has to go to his girlfriend and say, I can't keep sleeping with you because we're, we're married. It's the person who tells the friends, I can't keep going partying with you because it's wrong for me to get dr- drunk. It's the wife going to her husband and saying, we got problems, we got to go and get some help. It's the person dealing with pornography who's got the courage to come before the church or their small group and say, will you hold me accountable? Would you put these things on my computer? It's the teenage kid who walked forward last Sunday who said, I've grown up in this Christian family. In fact, my dad has even been a minister and I don't think I get Jesus. You think that's easy? No, that's not easy. But we have an example in Jesus of someone who faced the worst thing that ever happened. And yes, he faced it with faith and courage. But it's not Pollyanna faith. It's not just acting like everything's okay. It's throwing your body on the ground. And begging God for another way. But still facing your fears. And my friends, whatever you face today, courage doesn't mean you don't have to be afraid. Courage means you obey God even in the midst of it. And guys, there's hope here. Because here's what this story says. Jesus drank the whole cup of God's wrath. He drank the whole thing to the dregs of the worst sin in the history of the world, at the bottom of the cup. And he turned the cup over and he said to you and I, it is finished. And so now, despite every sorry thing you've done and I've done and every sin in our life, there is hope because Jesus drank the cup. And so today, if you find yourself scared, can we pray for you before you leave? If you find yourself facing a choice where obeying God is not the easy way and you need some courage, could we do what Jesus did, pray? 
If you're in the place where you're trying to choose whether you're going to follow God or you're going to follow the world, could we pray together today, not your will, not my will, that God's will be done? And let me tell you, you say, well, buddy, I'm scared. I'm really scared. What would people think? Or I can't hardly move from where I'm, I'm sitting. Guys, listen to me. Courage is even being scared like Jesus was in surrendering to God. That's courage. Do you need to display that kind of courage today? Do you need today to trust and obey? If you do, why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?